This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Conferences are great opportunities to discover new ideas and innovators. During our recent visit to Miami, we talked with founders of two startups who shared their company visions at the Future of Real Estate Summit. Both focused on providing a better experience to the renter. First up, the CEO of Doorbell Communities, which is supercharging apartment living through curated event experiences. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With Thomas Kutzman and Scott Pollock. So, Ben, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're recording live here at the. Future of Real Estate Summit. Um, you're a, a panelist later today, and uh, you wanted to connect. Um, you're doing some uh, interesting stuff in the amenity space at uh, Doorbell Communities. Um, and the reason I ask is that you know a lot of people talk about amenities. A lot of buildings have amenities, but most people don't use them. What's your approach to amenities that's different? Yeah, um, you know, we love working with developers who are kind of thinking about you know what the next generation of apartments are look like what the next generation of their assets are going to look like and you know 95% of our portfolio is existing assets right vintage 20 years we have one building that was built in 1914 it's a historical asset we have you know buildings that were built in the past year or two and I think the way we approach amenities is a little bit differently from most people I think we look at it more from the experience side of things and less from the hardscape right so we don't have any architects on our team we don't change a square foot of real estate we've, we've literally never redesigned the space we never built a space and we really don't want to. And the reason for that is because we think the use of the space, you know, what the space provides is a platform for community creation, right? Sometimes these spaces are called community lounges or community rooms. And we hold them true to that, right? We leverage existing spaces and sometimes they're amenities and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're empty lobbies, sometimes they're, you know, underutilized spaces like empty units or, you know, places outside of the building. It doesn't have to be a you know, beautiful rooftop. And we create meaningful experiences to create sticky communities, right? And we power that through our software, through our data, as well as through our experience providers and really kind of make sure that these spaces, whether they're amenity spaces or not, uh, in a multifamily building, really kind of get used to their fullest potential. Got it. And thinking about it, so like, let's take it from the viewpoint of a renter in a yeah. building. What would I experience if I lived in a building that was a doorbell community? Yeah, so let's say you live in doorbell towers in city X, right? Name a city. So on your end, everything is completely free, right? So we never charge you anything. You know, you have access to somewhere between two and six experiences per month. Think of them as, you know, bourbons and blazers. Think of them as learn how to pickle your own, uh, you know, carrots or your own pickles we had last month. Uh, learn how to, you know, make your own mobile. We're doing actually tomorrow in one of our buildings in Medford, just north of Boston. Uh, learn how to do yoga. We do kind of more social, kind of minded stuff there. And the goal with all of our experiences is to kind of have them be quite participatory, so very interactive. They're either creating, collaborating, competing, 
really bringing people together and fostering that sense of kind of conversation is one way to put it. It's not a grab-and-go lunch. It's not a wind-down Wednesday. It's nothing mundane like that, right? It's, it's usually, I mean, pull this through to that, but usually very exciting, very kind of engaging, and very engrossing, right? So you can stop by for five minutes if you want to if you're busy, or stop by for 90 minutes. And I think we really don't mind as long as there is meaningful conversation happening, and that's exactly what our team is trained to do, and we work with kind of best-in-class providers to you know, teach that dumpling-making class or you know, teach that pickling-making class. And it's a great way to get back to the neighborhood, support a local business, a mom-and-pop usually, um, and a really cool way to further integrate the neighborhood into the building and vice versa. Now, how do you get people excited about this? Because maybe I'm a biased, skeptical New Yorker, but like, I don't, I don't know my neighbors in my yeah. building. I don't interact with them. Like, you'll say hi on the elevator, but um, how do you get people to get over that skepticism hurdle that they want to come see? Yeah, I their think, neighbors. I think our data really shows that it's the content that brings people there, and then it's the community that makes them stay there. So, you know, I'm also a skeptical New Yorker, grew up right outside of New York myself, so I share that opinion. What will get me out, for example, as a renter is, you know, a pastrami tasting right in my lobby with pastrami from Katz's Deli, pastrami from the 2nd Avenue Deli. You vote on your favorite. We kind of have a bracket-style challenge. And by the way, I might meet, you know, a fellow neighbor. Let's say he's also in the tech world like myself. We have a conversation. You know, maybe we kind of continue the conversation next time. Maybe we connect. We hit it off right away. But, you know, and there are many ways that happens. And just hearing about some of the, you know, like these classes, you know, I think a lot of, if you look at the analysis, of like co-working spaces yeah right? like we work for example no tell for example yeah a lot of them do you know community events um, for their members that Absolutely. are focused on it's usually food or, or, or yeah. booze there's no everybody likes free food free booze who doesn't um, but it seems also like let's say for example you are a wine person or a bourbon drinker yeah. or taco lover like you might actually have more in common experientially with someone like that Absolutely. than opposed to you know yoga for you know, Absolutely. wellness thing because you know people are very well and I think that, that it's so critical to kind of hit the entire building right so there are people who are very into wellness usually we find that somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of our buildings are really into wellness then there's a huge component that loves alcohol and trying local wines we do a wine tasting pop-up with a bunch of our partners um, it, it's phenomenal I mean we do a bunch of things around education so you know we're thinking about you know learning how to code or kind of dabbling in, in you know writing JavaScript or writing you know C++ or something like that right. so it really depends on what you're interested in I think we have come to this conclusion that to really fully engage a community you have to fully engage micro communities and you know not everyone has the same interest not everyone can get along and again as a skeptical biased you know, New Yorker it's really creating those bridges that is really important I think that's particularly what our software platform that Doorbell Communities has built out does and kind of coming back to your question of you know what a resident sees it's not just the experiences it's an entire software suite mobile kind of Android iOS that allows you to connect with like-minded individuals you know ask where that local taco shop is ask where you know does anyone want to go see the new premiere at the Paris Theater in Midtown or wherever you're, you're located it's really kind of participatory and really kind of digitally enabled in that regard and also you know as a skeptical New York I love that phrase you can get really good deals at local businesses so we work with great partners in the area think of them as you know mom and pop shops like Katz's for example family owned you get 20% off your coffee every morning we might have a bakery you get 50% off your croissants every afternoon or a sushi restaurant you know two, two blocks away we try to keep them very walkable and it's just a really exciting way to discover what's around you 
they're curated by our team here at Doorbell Communities. And hey, why not save fifty percent off on your uh, you know eel roll tonight? And how do you, as a company, make money off this? Obviously, it's free for the renter. Yeah. Uh, how do you make money? Yeah, so we uh, charge apartment building owners. So think of them as you know the insurance companies, the MetLife's, the Prudentials, the you know principals, J.P. Morgan's of the world, large landlords, um, sometimes developers, usually institutional customers. We charge them on a per unit per month basis, and that covers all of our software, all of our analytics, as well as all of our experiences, labor, cost, you name it. And then as far as your costs, is a lot of the experiences that you're creating um, partnerships and and free, or like what's your expense structure? Yeah, one of our, I mean, our our biggest expense by far is, you know, our team. So, you know, we have a phenomenal team of content creators, a phenomenal team of software engineers, a phenomenal team of data analytics individuals, uh, analysts, et cetera, community managers that power these experiences and power the software and the analytics and the events themselves that, you know, create these sticky communities. So, you know, it could mean, you know, paying an experience provider, you know, a yoga teacher, whatever the cost is, or paying, you know, a psychic medium is one of our signature events, you know, paying our psychic mediums. And of course, we don't have any psychic mediums on our team. Um, you, you, know. might. you might, you, you, you might. never know. Melissa, she, <laughs> she knows the future. Um, but yeah, so, you know, if we do a psychic medium night, for example, where there's a group reading, you know, our platform, we pay the psychic medium. Uh, and we have a kind of feedback ne- mechanism that we, we built out that allows us to quality control these experience providers and make sure that they are truly the best in class. Right. And you're currently in Boston. We're in Boston and downtown Worcester. Two cities. Got it. Um, where do you see yourself going with this? Or where, where does Doorbell see the future where you want to go to? Yeah, we want to be in as many major metros in the U.S. as possible. You know, we love cities like New York, we love cities like DC, we love Philadelphia, and we love, you know, the secondary cities as well. We love the Clevelands of the world. We love the Portsmouths and the Portlands and whatnot of the world. You know, we're taking a good look at Chicago very soon. We're here in Miami speaking with a bunch of developers and owners, and we think there's a bunch of industry synergies down here. I think we're being very, um, I would say, diligent about who we're working with. So we love working with you know, owners and developers who have a very long kind of hold period. You know, we don't love working with you know an owner where it's a two-year hold period. Although we have, uh, we take a very long-term stance on the building. I think that's really why we're a really good fit for the kind of large insurance, you know, PGIMs types of the world that you know hold for a very long period of time. Um, so I think for us, it's really important on who we work with. You know, we risk the doorbell communities brand with every building that we accept onto our platform. Um, so we do a very kind of thorough dive into you know, property management history, you know, our you know, maintenance requests getting fulfilled, you know, what's the level of satisfaction, we look at reviews, although reviews are kind of a mixed bag, yeah, it's, it's a really it's positive It's a sticky really subject negative. depending on who you talk to. Yeah, it's a very, very sticky subject. Um, so we, we try to do a really kind of holistic view and a holistic kind of application process, which is not super cumbersome, but we just try to make sure we're, we're covering all our bases. Right. And when you roll out to a new city, yeah, what does that look like? Because obviously you have the platform, you have the software, yeah. which I'm sure is very scalable. But uh, you know, how do you enter into a new market? Yeah, I think we're taking a lot of cues for some great companies like Rubhub and great companies like you know WeWork, etc., where we have an expansion team. Uh, it's a group of four people right now. Uh, we work to establish those local ties in that city. So finding the best experience providers, finding the best local business to work with, finding that local hot sauce company that makes you know that Fuego hot sauce or whatever they call it, 
we find the local breweries, we do a ton of work with local breweries in Boston, there's a thriving scene in Boston. Night Shift is, quick shout out to one of our Perks partners, Night Shift Brewing, it's phenomenal. If you guys like IPAs, it's, it's the best. So what the launch process entails is partnerships, creating meaningful relationships with the city, meaningful relationships with local nonprofits. We kind of facilitate a lot of volunteering opportunities through our partners as well. Um, and then on the software side, we create new digital communities for those buildings and those seed partners that we work with in that new city. Typically, we work with somewhere between two and four partners to start a city. So every unit in the building gets a login. Yeah, so you see, have access, exactly. To see what the experience, the upcoming experience is. Exactly. So, I mean, it's right now it's kind of separated into three platforms on the app. So there's, you see what experiences you can RSVP, you can check in, etc. You can see what other neighbors are going. You know, let's say you met Tony. Tony and you had a great conversation around a band that you both liked. You can see if he's coming there. Right. Second part is uh, posts, which you can see, you know, residents are looking for, you know, a vacuum to borrow or looking to find the best place to grab tacos or right. find and a colleague to go run with them or do an Iron Man challenge yeah, or I'm, whatever. I'm, I'm new to the building. Like, I'm new to the building. We see that all the like, time. Yeah, where's the nearest Whole Foods? Although Google probably can do that. And the third part is the perks. So this is the 20% off your coffee around the corner every day, etc. Oh, gotcha. So, so it's it, not for lack of a better phrase, it's almost like a built, there's an additional layer of almost a built-in Groupon or loyalties uh, program? Loyalty we, program? Really, it's just kind of an extra exclusive perk for the building. Oh, no. It's just something we're doing. We don't charge the businesses anything. It's just a really fun way for us to let you see what's in your neighborhood. We look at more as, as neighborhood connection, less as kind of the perk part, but hey, 20% off you know, your lunch every day is nothing you know small. It definitely adds up, but we're really not doing it mostly for the discounts. It's more for the discovery. So we try to kind of change those up every so often and feature a bunch of fun local businesses, usually mom and pops, um, that, uh, that we're, we're excited about. It. It's fun for our team to, to find those folks because we taste test everything. We make sure our residents get the best. And you... Uh what do you see as the biggest challenge from here, like in that rollout? Yeah, I think I think there are a few things that we see as, as challenges. I think one is, I think there are some challenges in the real estate finance world that I think we're coming up against where we have a recurring fee as part of our business model. Right. And, and that usually gets treated less favorably from an NOI kind of refinancing perspective than, you know, large capital expenditure. So a lot of, you know, owners are more comfortable spending $5 million on a brand new roof deck that may or may not get used than, you know, whatever it is per month uh, on kind of a recurring much smaller number. Um, so that's one thing. I think some other challenges we see are uh, around affordability, actually. So, you know, we're active, obviously, in kind of class A, but very much in class B and, and more, more so in, in workforce housing as well. And our team would love to get very involved in the affordable space as well. And I think that's one thing that we're really trying to wrap our heads around. So that's a challenge we see coming up in the future on the technology side. I mean, the world is moving at a million miles per hour. So kind of making sure that we're not accumulating any technical debt. I mean, we're kind of bringing on the best software engineers we can and, and making sure our software not only augments the experience that we're trying to create in person, but also doesn't inhibit it, right? So typically, you know, we don't want our residents using our software, the doorbell app, at events, and and we really have an unbelievable engineering team that I think keeps that in mind and makes sure that everything we're building on the software side enables in-person interaction and true community to be built. Right. For going to the affordable housing topic for a second, yeah. obviously affordable housing generally doesn't have all the advantages of the super luxury, super amenity buildings. Uh, 
as you're having those conversations, how do you think about, does the experience change? Does the amenities you're offering, since they're more experiential, is it, isn't it potentially the same experience you're creating regardless? Or is the hurdle the distribution and acceptance from the community? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's a question we're still trying to figure out ourselves, um, and we haven't yet. I think the way we envision that happening is a mixture of kind of tax incentives and resident services budgets. You know, typically an affordable project, and this is something we're still learning a lot about, a lot about, is you know, tasked with you know social workers, you know, job retraining, um, a bunch of different services. You know, learn financials, basic financials. H and R Block comes in, does a session. I think the way we see our involvement there is very similar, exactly, exactly the same as the way we see our involvement in an ultra high end luxury class A project. It's nothing different. It's the same exact brand, same exact software, very similar experiences, but they're really geared towards integrating that project into the community and vice versa. So think of it as you know, learning how to code, learn C like I said before. Think of it as you know introduction to a 401k or saving for your future or saving for a college degree. And we really want to make sure, again, those are experiential. They're not just, you know, passive experiences where, or passive events where you just kind of sit and listen to somebody lecture. It's, 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 it's engaging, right? And we're strong believers in that, you know, communities make things better, right? They're human, right? Interacting with a peer or a colleague and learning something, you know, coding together. Is, is much more impactful and powerful and improves outcomes as compared to doing it on your own, right? So I think we see our software, we see our kind of platform really extending very well to that uh, segment of the market. I think we really need to figure out, like you said earlier, what that rollout strategy is, which partners to work with, and truly how we make that happen. Because I feel like there's a lot of conjecture out there, but as a, as a fast-growing technology company, the most important thing for us is actually doing it and learning from there. Excellent. No, this has been a, a great chat, and uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing you on uh, yeah, the panel uh, later on today. Um, and when you're in New York, even though you're originally from New York, you probably have a great, great network there. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, we can be helpful. Uh, yeah, please let us know. So, uh, yeah, we wish you uh, continued luck uh, with Doorbell. Thanks for having me. Next up, the CEO and COO of Veryapt, a data-driven concierge approach to an improved rental experience. Are you looking to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. Seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end buyer platform, Purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, plus receive up to 2% cash back thanks to Preview's Smart Buyer Commission Rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to previewapp.com backslash buyer. That's previewapp.com backslash buyer. Uh, we're recording live from the Future of Real Estate uh, Summit here in Miami, and uh, you know, happy to have uh, Ashrit and Scott from Veriapp um, joining us today. Um, they were also presenters here today uh, uh, in the pitch competition. Uh, you know, obviously great pitch, uh, but uh, you wanted to share their story um, and uh, how they're doing so far. So, Ashrit, Scott, thanks for joining us. 
Um, let me kick things off. Uh, what is very apt? Sure. So uh, very apt uh, from a customer standpoint, it's really just an easier way to find the right apartment. Um, but when we think about this, the industry as a whole, we're really uh, changing how traditional brokerages work. Uh, and we're reinventing that with a tech enabled concierge rental platform. Um, so it allows us to go end to end um, from the beginning of the search part where you're searching online all the way to scheduling your tours and, and finally um, applying online. And uh, what markets are, are you currently serving? Sure. So yeah, you can go on veryapp.com and, and sort of try our product in, in over 35 markets. But really the, the concierge part, which is you know kind of how we view our differentiator, that's live in Philadelphia, Chicago, and D.C. Uh, and we're currently raising capital to, to launch four new markets. Understood. And we, we've talked to a lot of rental brokerage concepts, roommate matching concepts on the podcast before, uh, what do you think sets very apt apart from other rental concepts? Yep. So uh, a couple of things. Uh, so um, you know, my background was online travel. I used to work at TripAdvisor. And I think when we started the company, our number one focus was having really accurate data and content and making this ecosystem more transparent. So the first thing we did is we had to make sure we work directly with the properties to have um, to actually own our listings. So we're not just taking, you know, kind of scraping a bunch of listings from online and aggregating it together. Um, so we work directly. We have accurate pricing and inventory. And then we also have our review platform. So we have um, really accurate data from existing tenants talking about their experiences in the apartment. Um, where our sort of unique IP comes in, it's really on the recommendation engine. So a lot of uh, sort of complex, um, you know, big data on the back end, allowing us to actually match a customer with the right apartment building. Um, so when you start putting in preferences like your commute, your amenity requirements, we're able to sort of highlight the buildings that best fit, fit your requirements. And then on the, on the uh, offline part, our concierges are replacing the function of a traditional agent. So they're um, helping you really guide your search process, but they're all salaried, they're working as a team, so their interests are aligned with yours in really trying to help you find the right place. And given that you're focused on like owning the listings um, and not just you know, scraping or taking a data feed in, um, how are you going out and you know, acquiring those listings? Because you know, any, any marketplace or platform, um, you, know, you need supply on there for it to be intriguing for the you know, renters to come in. Um, how do you approach that process? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of ways to tackle that. So when we go launch a new market, we start with all of the inventory that traditionally just works with brokerages. So you automatically can get people that are listening on the MLS, people that sort of use locators as part of their uh, customer acquisition strategy. But we're also working on the management level with like, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a Graystar, you're a Bazudo, um, setting up those relationships by region or by on the national scale. So you're basically saying, you know, you're already working on some listing platforms online, um, maybe with a fixed price description but the you know you're sort of missing out on this sort of performance-based acquisition channel and they're really excited about working with us because the quality of our customer we typically target kind of this higher-end millennial customer that's that's kind of looking at mid to high-end properties and that's that sort of aligns with the type of properties they manage so they really want to get a better educated customer in the front door um, touring their property and one of the unique things about working with us versus you know any of the other listing platforms is we do all of the kind of upfront screening for them in the sense that someone that's coming on a tour with very apt already knows exactly what units they're looking at they've already kind of read the reviews they know about the neighborhood so there's a much higher likelihood that they're going to actually convert 
rather than someone that's just sort of walking in and saying, hey, let me see this building, it looks pretty. Right, and as far as the business model, are the renters paying, are the, are the landlords paying, uh, how do you make money out of this? Yeah, so the, uh, the properties are the ones paying. Um, our view is, again, coming from online travel, it's, it's, it's sort of crazy that there are even markets where the renter is paying to find an apartment. Um, every other sort of segment treats uh, you know customers as the one you're trying to acquire, um, and you have to spend marketing dollars to sort of um, you know basically showcase your property. And we're seeing that trend even in markets that have traditionally been uh, renter pay. So like New York, we're seeing that really start to shift. Um, a lot of that has to do with new construction um, and, and just more institutional investment into properties that are thinking about customer acquisition as just part of the you know part of the business, and their their end goal is to really. Uh, get occupancy up and and really drive kind of net effect of rent prices up. Um, yeah. And uh, as far as far as the landlords you're dealing with, are they you know larger landlords where you're getting whole blocks of, of apartments uh, availability, or are you going consumer by consumer? Yeah, we. We tend to focus on multifamily, and, and with that, we kind of go top down from like the larger management companies. Um, when we launch a new market, we start with the people we already work with in, in a previous market. We onboard those, and then we start looking at who are really uh, instrumental for that market ecosystem. So occasionally, there'll be you know you you move to Chicago, and you'll find out. You know, we've never worked with this management company, but they own 20 buildings. And that's where we really start. Um, as we're, you know, by the time we're in year two in a market, we're really trying to get anyone that owns, you know, 20 plus unit buildings. Um, so even if you just own one building, they'll want to onboard you. Yeah, and we distinguish it a bit less than, you know, do we show brownstones in large buildings? It's more, can we work with a portfolio of 100 plus units where we have uh, a good sense of the quality of what those units will be and the data integrity as we take in feeds? Right. And as far as the, the cities that you're in so far, so you're, you're currently in Philly, D.C., Chicago, um, what what did you learn or what nuances did you learn from rolling out to a new city that you that wasn't necessarily in your comfort zone? Um, I, I think the biggest thing, you know, especially when you're, a, you know, you're founding your first company and you're, you know, really excited by kind of the team culture you're building and making sure that everyone in the company kind of buys in, you realize when you start having, you know, we have some people on the ground in Chicago, we have some people on the ground in D.C., um, it's a whole different challenge to try to instill that same culture and that same process in multiple markets, especially as you're scaling on a, on a venture uh, scale. So it, it's one of the things we had to really work on and making sure, you know, one, we are, you know, setting up calls between different members of the team, so you don't end up being like, "Hey, I don't even know who works in our Philly office," and there's so many new hires all the time. How do you make sure they all know each other and can share information? And then, lastly, you know, it's always hard on a startup budget to figure out how, you know, what's the right level of bringing people in for team events and, and really handling that. But we do try to make sure that, you know, our DC team—they're close enough to Philly; they come in for any sort of team event. Uh, Chicago office has their own events, and then people from the Philly corporate office go to Chicago at least periodically. So. Um, there's a lot you have to kind of invest in there because otherwise you're going to have this feeling that like you have one market, Philly, and then everyone else is kind of like the secondary like stepchild market. Right. And, you know, you know, you have multiple founders, you know, what's your backstory? How did you, how did you guys meet and how did you, you know, come to start this company together? Yeah, so there's actually, so there's uh, Scott and I, and then there's one more co-founder who's on the tech side, um, Andrew. And we've sort of, I mean, the entire kind of management team has sort of met through um, just different parts of our life through college. So Andrew and I actually were friends in undergrad. Uh, I guess I say we're friends, we're still friends, but uh, met during undergrad at Princeton. Um, didn't start the company immediately, um, went on to do our own thing. So I worked in online travel for a while. 
Um, and then Andrew was getting his PhD in uh, actually mechanical and aerospace engineering at Cornell. And then uh, Scott and I met at Wharton um, when we were getting our MBA. Um, I don't know if you want to kind of go from why you, what, what got you interested. Yeah, we were actually neighbors, so it's also a bit convenient from the storyline living in the same building. Obviously, really important for us to find the right place. Uh, have Ushereth having the experience before TripAdvisor, and myself, I was uh, a research analyst at a hedge fund. I covered TripAdvisor. A lot of my job was actually trying to figure out what Ushereth was doing all the time. So you spoke the same language. Exactly. And so we had a lot of you know, just nerd conversations when other people, I think, were just talking about other things at Jameson Business School. We were talking about the TripAdvisor model. When Ushereth you know, so it came with the concept for very apt. For me, it was a very, you know, obvious thing to go with to add this data integrity and review content and then ultimately end to end. Um, so I think it was having, you know, across all those different channels, like shared visions of, you know, when each part of the co-founding team was assembled, that we believed in, you know, each person to have expertise and then the vision that, you know, that expertise was driving was correct. Right. And I, I, I want to drill a little bit deeper on one thing, um, you know, you both were working at other companies, you know, you working at TripBuzz, you working at a hedge fund. Um, what drove you to go back to your MBA and then completely change industries, right? Because it, it, it's a growing trend on the podcast, it's a growing trend even with, you know, friends, like, I, I used to work on, uh, on Wall Street as well, and like, I have all these friends that have left the industry to go do startups or, you know, left, you know, great corporate jobs to go do their own startups. Um, what do you think is triggering that switch uh, to go that way? Yeah, so uh, I guess a couple of things there. I mean, so one, just touching on the, like, why do we even go back to business school? And I was probably, I don't know how unique it is, but I, I went to business school with a thought that I was going to go work on a startup. Now, that's a wide range. Like, maybe I'm starting my own company. Maybe I'm joining, like, a 15-person company. But I think I wanted to do something a little earlier stage. And part of the reason to go to business school is actually you know, part of it. They always talk about the network. Like that's how you meet meet a Scott. That's how you you have time to actually really process like what opportunities there are. Because when you're working, you're always you're basically always working. So you're really kind of one track. Like how do I make this consumer experience better? Um, and business school gave me a chance to kind of you know look at some ideas I already had. Um, start talking to people and, and figure out, you know, where the actual opportunity was. But I think the other part that has sort of changed with how we view startup experience, and you, this has kind of been the case in, in San Francisco and the Bay Area for a long time, is it's no longer viewed as a, like, I'm going to go start a company and see they're going to be a giant company or a giant waste of time. And I think that's, that's one of the things that creates this risk aversion of going out and starting your own thing. I think people are starting their own company to try to find something that they're passionate about that really makes work exciting, but they also understand it's Part of their career journey so you're learning so many skills that you can't really get at a, another company i mean i've learned how to hire i've learned how to um you know haven't had to fire yet but you know, that's the, the thing that a journey that everyone's gonna have to do you learn how to you know basically get your own lawyer and and sort of close uh close rounds so all these things that you have to do to actually make sure your company is you know making it um through different stages of its growth and those are just things you don't get exposure to at a uh, a larger company yeah and i think for me uh, a lot of my reason to go from the hedge fund side uh, to business school initially was just I didn't find shorting companies incred incredibly rewarding. And I think for a lot of people at my fund, uh, which was great and a great experience, I think they found a lot of value in going along in short stocks and thought they had liquidity to market and that for them provided them a sense of importance every day. And I think for me at the end of the day, that was not what really mattered to me. I really loved learning about companies and I wanted to contribute to a company and 
do what for me felt like creating value. And I think during business school and through those experiences, the rewarding the reward I get from working on a startup, from seeing a customer write a review on our experience and we're creating something that didn't exist before, um, is really valuable to me. And I think as Ashrath was saying, the fact that startups have become a more popular landing ground post business school removes a lot of the stigma of trying something new that you find rewarding rather than going into you know banking law medicine or, or sort of these standard paths that um, you know I think a lot of parents really expect their kids to go do and now you can do something that's saying hey I'm creating a business there's risk but it's an okay thing to do and it's something that you know over our lives will appreciate and turning back to very apps uh, you're in three markets I'm sure, you know, you're, you're going other places as well how do you envision the next you know, one, three, and ten years. Like, you know, what are those you know four cities you're raising on? If if you can comment, um, and where do you see Barry App in you know ten years from now uh, beyond just the you know, the handful of cities? Sure. Uh, you know, sort of part one as we're you know as we're scaling is really getting to more markets. Um, so kind of touching on it in terms of next four markets, uh, New York being kind of slated for the for the next uh, immediate market. Um, we're, we're in Miami right now, so Miami is actually one of the markets we have kind of on slate. But that's something we sort of, as we launch each new market, we look at that data and, and sort of make sure that we're going to the next, you know, kind of best opportunity. Um, but for our, in our view, because of both our customer is very transient and, you know, people will move from Philly to New York and they'll move to San Francisco. And then same, the properties we work with, they usually have a, a national presence or at least a regional one. Um, that's why we think it's really important to get to that scale quickly. Um, so kind of on our, you know, four-year roadmap, we're looking at trying to get to the top 50 markets in the U.S. Um, and then separately, I think, you know, trying to start thinking about how do you build these deeper relationships in each market we're in. So one of those is just, you know, like with with us building this customer service experience that's just amazing and, and runners love it, it's really starting to expand that brand out and make sure that, you know, anyone that's moving into to a Philly or a Chicago knows that, you know, before you go sign your lease, you want to actually work with an expert on finding the right place. Um, and we do a lot of that by just partnering even with the local universities and employers and making sure that, you know, when you're starting your new job at like Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, you know, you start with the housing resource from Veriap that helps you kind of get your bearings. So a lot of it's kind of building out that brand and the partnerships with really important institutions in the market. And then lastly, I think we'll start looking at kind of opportunities that are tangential to what we're doing, you know, immediately right now. And some of that is around, you know, are there things we can do on the, you know, post you designed your lease, you know, you need runner's insurance, you need, you know, help figuring out moving. Um, those are kind of the immediate opportunities that you can, we can monetize right now with the right partners. Um, but then there's some deeper things around, you know, our customer starts aging, they become a home sales customer. Um, how can we partner with kind of the existing ecosystem to kind of either hand that off or build it ourselves? Um, and yeah, so to really think, and then thinking about just kind of um, even on the, the partnership side with the uh, the buildings, um, we've sort of started to kick around like how can we help them with even their uh, on on their end they you know they have leasing staffs and they don't always offer like these uh, you know kind of on demand tours on the weekends and the evenings so how can we you know take our ecosystem or our, our infrastructure and start solving problems beyond the immediate um, rental part. And uh, you know, just to finish on one question, I've been starting to ask this with a lot of different founders, because um, the fundraising process is you know, difficult for a lot of folks, um, but it doesn't have to be. Um, what is the toughest question you've gotten from a potential investor during a pitch? I guess this is my question because Scott doesn't go on all the I pitches. I think so. I don't anymore. I've, uh... 
I don't know if there's like a specific question that is uh, that I would say is like you know this is like the the hardest question I get. I usually find that it'll it'll be it, it, what's the hardest part of I guess answering some of the, the venture questions is that you're dealing with a very wide range of knowledge on a space or on a segment. So sometimes like I and this actually so I guess this happened um, really early in the fundraising process. Um, like a couple of years ago, we talked to like a local fund and they didn't like my background is SEO paid search at trip and they they literally didn't understand like what SEO was. And now you're just not sure where to take the conversation. So you start like backing up and you're like, well, this is how customers find you online. And then this is how, you know, how Yelp's model works. Cause you're trying to build these parallels. And usually when you're talking to investors, it's all about pattern recognition. And then you start seeing like all the patterns are breaking down because they don't recognize similar companies. So for the most part, I think that actually helped me figure out how to be better about talking to the right investors um, because it's not, it's going to be so hard to build that connection with someone that isn't really looking at similar type companies. Um, and so we got much better about being like, hey, don't spend your time with investors that don't know consumer internet really well, don't know marketplaces. And with that, you also get a better sense of what are the, you start kind of get a sense for what are the, the good questions. So you have really good answers for those um, otherwise you get distracted by all the noise uh, well, thank you for uh, you know, both taking the time out uh, of the you know, the programming today to, to chat with us. Um, you know, wish you, you know, continued uh, success and uh, you know, good luck with uh, the results of the pitch competition later. Uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, we'll uh, we'll get some good results. So, uh, but yeah, thank you for joining us and uh, you know, look forward to you know, staying in touch as uh, you move to other markets. Great. Awesome, Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.